were you going to say? I was just going to say, we're also missing on people because um, the kids are sick. That's true. Uh, so, uh, temperature well, change or what have you? Dinner is I, I don't know. So, um, for all those of you listening online, we are, we are talking about meeting the Holy Spirit. We are talking about who the Holy Spirit is and, and why maybe as Christians we don't know him as well as, as maybe we should. Because as we talked about last time when we began, if there's any member of the Trinity that a lot of modern evangelicals struggle to feel a connection with, it's the Spirit, which is ironic given some of the things that we talked about last time. Um, but we want to make sure that we are talking about the Holy Spirit, not just at Pentecost, but what, we, what was he doing before Pentecost? Help me out here. Why is it, again, we talked about this last week, but why is it that when most people think of the Holy Spirit, they tend to jump to Pentecost? Because it's a, a physical representation and something that was really Okay. Wow. Anybody else? It was, it was just very, you know, visible. Okay. It's very visible, very tangible. So something that people tend to think of as not being particularly visible or tangible. And also, if you're talking about evangelical Christians, we tend to think, well, yeah, this is, this is kind of where we come into the picture with stuff. An amazing number of evangelicals think New Testament far more than they think Old Testament. In fact, um, given what we talked about last week, it, I remember somebody saying, not last week, but, but in years past, that the Holy Spirit, yeah, he was active in the Old Testament, but kind of um, kind of obscurely. It's kind of scattershot. He, he wasn't doing a lot in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament. Would you agree with that, given, given what you know, what the Holy Spirit was doing in the Old Testament? Not at all. The Holy, the Holy Spirit was um, there at the first, and he, he's completely active. Uh, he shows up uh, in different places and fills people to overflowing at certain times and he, he moves throughout history sometimes subtly but sometimes very Not so obviously subtly. so why is it that people will tend to think of the holy spirit being obscure or scatter shots of the old testament yeah i mean he's active but you know not like he is in the new testament and and, and he's not like he's filling people it's not like he's interacting with people. I mean, sometimes, I guess, but it's just just more incidental here and there. He doesn't seem like, he isn't described like the Father is described as a, a character, a Father. Jesus is, you know, man. The Holy Spirit is spirit. Spirit is amorphous and not concrete. How does Jesus describe the Father to the Samaritan woman at the well? You'll... You'll worship him in spirit and truth because God is spirit. Yeah, I mean, so it, it is interesting that we go, yeah, but but Father, I can wrap my head around. You go, but he, he is spirit. Yeah. yeah, but Father. Anyway, as we look at, at the Old Testament last time, what sorts of things had jumped out at you? Do you remember from last time? What sort of things had jumped out at you? that he did, or that he connected with people in, in the Old Testament. Any, any specific work of the Holy Spirit that struck you as strange, meaningful, odd? I really appreciate um, where we looked at the different places where um, saw the Holy Spirit working and meeting in the 
artistic ways because I think we forget that that is a gift. And I appreciated how the Holy Spirit works in the Balaam. You know, just that the very which is interesting, yeah. The, 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 the Holy Spirit would would fill people so that they could do craftsmanship. Or fill people so that they would have floor plans to the temple. Or fill people so that they would speak God's truth to people. But not in a passive way. In a, no, no, this is what you're going to say kind of way. Uh, again, sometimes when we think of the Holy Spirit, we think of him as, there are some groups that even refer to him as God's active force, you know, impersonal and, 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 this, and this energy source. But the idea of, of, of the Holy Spirit being God, uh, the, the very person of God and commanding with a personality, he has his own heart, he has his own mind, he has his own perspective, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit says, this is what you are going to say. He has his own commanding presence. That's not always the way we look at him. Anything else jumped out at you as we were going through the Old Testament? Uh, I thought it interesting, the, the use of the Spirit in terms of even violence, uh, or kind of the, the other stuff that's like, uh, I wouldn't necessarily attribute that. I mean, I know it happens, but even the the spirit that causes destruction or... Yeah, the Holy Spirit's leading people into battle. The Holy Spirit fills <laughs> Samson with strength so he can go out and kill better. You know, that's not the way we usually think of him. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just to say that just uh, um, all those verses we talked about last time, just uh, they're all different, but they're actually the purpose um, that you mentioned was all the same to enable, to teach, to train, all of it was just uh, going to the same, with the spirits doing the same purpose. Which, and how would you, excellent, and, and, and how would you define that? What same purpose is the Holy Spirit doing in all these? What is the Holy Spirit saying, I'm going to talk to you about how to work with wood, I'm going to talk to you about floor plants, I'm going to talk to you about how to kill people better, I'm going to fill you so that you know how to sing, I'm going to fill you and give breath to your nostrils. Why? Because you could look at that and just go, man, that's all over the place. That's scattershot. Well, what is the consistent purpose of all that? Okay. You could argue all things fall into that. I agree, but I'm just, in what way? Yeah. Well, to point to, to God, yeah. to bring glory, to bring men to God. Why did, why did God Fill Samson with his spirit so he could go kill better. Is it because God likes killing a lot? Is that the rationale? And you go, well, no. It's because God needed a blunt instrument against the Philistines. And Samson is the quintessential blunt instrument, right? So he's like, do that. I can use that. Pharaoh is hard. I can harden him and use that. Samson, you're a walking id. I can use that. You know, there's, there's stuff that I can do. All of these things, whether you're talking about the floor plan of the temple, you're talking about, I'm going to curse people and instead I end up blessing them. You're talking about um, God leading people into battle. All these things 
come back to what we were talking about here with Saul and Samuel. It's like God wants to use you, draw you to himself, and change you into a different person, and draw you into relationship with him. All these things, ultimately, are helping individuals, the nation, what have you, draw closer to the Lord. It serves God's will, God's perfect will, specifically because it honors God, ultimately. You might say, I'm not sure how ripping a lion apart, you know, specifically honors God. Immediately? Maybe not immediately. But do you see how in the story that ends up, even that killing, ends up germane later on in the story? Well, that's a whole other thing. So let's continue on today. We're going to continue doing popcorn reading where I'm going to ask people to read a verse and we'll just kind of go around the room and as it comes to you, just read the next verse. So I'll tell you what, let's start in the back this time. Christy, would you take Isaiah 63, 9 through 14? Let's continue looking at the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament and think going on before Pentecost. In all their distress, he too was distressed. An angel of his presence saved his love and mercy he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all of the days of the old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people, where he did, where is he, where is he who brought them through the sea, the shepherd and the flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain, himself, to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths like a horse in the country they did not stumble, like cattle that go down to the land they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make yourself gloriously. Help me out here. How can the Holy Spirit be protective and combative and peace-bringing and still be the same guy? How can he bring them peace? And how can he fight against them? How can he protect them and lead them? How can the same Spirit, because we're not even talking about multiple books and different people's take on Within the same clump of verses, you get the Holy Spirit fighting against them and the Holy Spirit being the one that brings them peace. Well, he's the one that has the unchanging mission, you know, to bring glory to God and bring people to God, and it's the people that are changing, so his method changes with where the people in their hearts are at. Okay. Anybody else want to speak to that? Absolutely. Anything else that anybody sees? Well, just like people can't change and do things different ways, why can't the Lord's I don't believe God ever changes yeah, and does things the different. The way they're doing it. The method. Why? Be because he's, like Christy said, working to glorify God all the time. And so the way it's one thing, one method might work for one group at one time, and another method may work for another group at another time. And just like people can work differently at different times. Except in the Holy Spirit. Okay. I just want to be careful that we don't think God tries different things at different times. Or you know, yesterday I did. I'm trying to say the okay. core mission is the same, and the core being is the same. But how you do what you do, the, the reason stays the same. Okay. 
See, I would argue that he's doing the exact same thing. He doesn't change what he's doing at all here. Isn't he standing against people who are standing against God? Isn't he flamingly, powerfully saying, I fight for God and his people and against those who are against God? Which goes back to what Christie is getting at, but I wanted to make it a little bit more pointed. You go, well, the people change. Right. Holy Spirit is there being this flaming spirit of God going, I, I, I am power and I stand against those who stand against God. And the people of God stand behind him and say, yay. And then casually stroll out in front of him and realize now here in Isaiah that they're actually fighting against God and kind of shocked that God is fighting against them. Do you get the image of the fact that there's a spirit and then they 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 go to the spirit and then they forsake the spirit and then but the end they rest in the spirit like it's just this idea that if they were to just stay with the spirit yeah. as opposed to pushing it like the spirit is the same as the people that are changing. So. And, which is the only reason that I went into that as much as I did because the, the key thing is, is if you were to just stay here everything would have been okay. At the beginning of this, isn't this the same spirit that helped you out and all this kind of stuff? Yeah. At the end of this, isn't the same spirit who wants to bring you peace? Yeah. He didn't change. Why are you fighting yourself on the odds against him? You know, because well, we didn't stay where we needed to stay. What sense of personality do you begin to see in God's spirit here? Any Anything here that suggests personality? In what way? Even in the first line, he says, distressed. He too was distressed. Yeah, so you, he's distressed. He's distressed. He's, he's not anxious, like he's worrying about what's going on. It just, it hurts. What else do you see, personality-wise? Well, he was grieved by the rebellion. Okay, what does that mean? Hurt. And grief specifically is, it's a hurt, it's a specific kind of hurt. What, how would you define the hurt that grief is? It's a deep sense of yeah. Think about how many times in Scripture, and I don't want to, I don't want to anthropomorphize God. I don't want to sit there and say we can look at God as if He were a schmo like us. I just want to remind us we're created in the image of God. Think about how many times in Scripture we're told that God is jealous for His people in a healthy way, where He says you're you're in relationship with Me, but you're running after all these other guys that aren't treating you right. Or how many times we're told that God is grieved because He says. This is what, this was what it was supposed to be, and this got taken, this got lost. Think about how many times God is angered. Think about how many times we're told that God cares. Think about how many times we're told that God is brokenhearted with us. How many times God rejoices with us. It's not that God is a schmo like we are. It's that we're in his image, and he's an emotive guy. He just does it, you know, healthfully appropriately. But yeah, you can 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 the Holy Spirit be distressed saying this? I mean, I'm I'm concerned. It, it, it it's it's bothering me. Yeah. Can he be grieved? I have this sense of loss of something that was important that got broken and lost. Yeah. Can he be angry? Get that impression. He's got a personality. It's not just, well, God's Spirit does this because God the Father is grieved. God's Spirit is grieved. 
Somebody, let's, let's hit Isaiah here. Um, and, and, uh, and Micah. Um, I don't know who's next. Isaiah 11, 1 to 2. The next person take Isaiah 42, 1. And the next person take Micah 3, 7 through 8. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Who's got 42-1? Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Micah 3, 7 and 8. Yeah, we kind of skipped around. It's just like we lost a sense. But that's all right. We're back on the sense of order now. No, no, that's not good. Don't you? It's initiative. Give me a fist bump. Three, seven, and eight. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Okay, so help me out. What specific work of the Holy Spirit's, or works of the Holy Spirit, would be being highlighted here? How would you define, I mean, obviously we're talking about among other things, like the Messiah to come. But what's the Holy Spirit bringing? I mean, wisdom, that's great. But anything else that you see in 11, 1 to 2, 42, 1, Micah 3? Justice. Yeah, I mean... We talk a lot nowadays about social justice, but this this isn't social justice where we say my particular ox is being gored, or um, this particular group. This is God going, no, justice, capital J, things made right on every level with every group, doing it the right way. Not, we're going to take down the group in power, which, by the way, is how stereotypically, First century Judaism was taking this, right? The Messiah will come and take out the Romans, and then our people will be in charge again. He will make things right for us. Right? Is that the vibe that you're getting here? Is that God says, I want to make sure that I take down the handful of people in power and make sure that the people hearing this know that they get everything that they were hoping for? Well, the last part of Isaiah 42. Justice to the nations. Justice isn't, isn't ownership by Israel. Yeah! Now, sometimes that gets a little convoluted because he does wrap this in with things like Israel being its own nation, having its own sovereignty. But it's always within the context of with God at the center of it, with God leading. <laughs> this is capital J. I'm sorry, what are you going to say? Well, as they say in, in verse 8, it talks about bringing justice is like, in, like, in the context of declaring to Jacob his transgression and his realization. Yeah. And also justice for his love. And, and that is, and that's exactly where I was going to go next. It's like, yeah, justice, in pointing out all the stuff you guys did wrong, too. And, and, and it's justice 
to all the nations, including the one I'm talking to right now. Because we're talking about my justice. The whole world is broken, and I'm making the whole world right. So this is the Holy Spirit in power. This is the Holy Spirit saying, I am, I am I'm coming to fill this Messiah with the sort of power, with the sort of wisdom to make the whole thing right. Whether you want him to or not. Whether he helps your gored ox or not. Because odds are it's going to, probably going to gore your ox a smidgy bit more in some ways. But yeah, does this sound familiar to any of the stuff we've talked about? This kind of move of the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about it a little bit today. What? Well, in terms, you know, this this goal of the Holy Spirit is in lockstep with what God is doing. It's in lockstep with what Jesus is doing. And it's just as um, just as important and just as evident. Mm-hmm. And back here, where he was with the judges bringing a sense of justice, there's a, at least a temporal sense of, I'm, um, I'm, kind, of, I'm kind of doing some spinach, you know, uh, on some things to, to bring about the justice on a relatively small regional level. This is large-scale spinach, you know, but not necessarily just God being frustrated or God stamping his foot. This is God going, I'm making things right. This is what the Holy Spirit is ultimately going to come and do. But again, we tend to look at this in very small sorts of, of ways. We tend to think, yes, our little region, our country, our ox, this is what's going to be made right. I, I want justice. And, and I go back to what we've talked about a couple of times of late. David's wisdom in saying, yes, smite all the bad. Search me. Make sure I'm not bad. Then smite all the bad people. And I'm not sliding him for doing that. I'm like, no, that's wisdom. To recognize, wait a minute, God's justice needs to incorporate across-the-board kind of justice. That's a Holy Spirit kind of thing. That's a, that's a, I mean, we like to think, dove. Like, this is flaming dove kind of Holy Spirit kinds of stuff. So how does this begin to point to the Holy Spirit's working in the New Testament? I'm going to be the same. I'm going to be the okay. same things that I have. We had a, what amounts to a whole Bible study on Friday night in Sojourners, where we looked at Joel and realized Joel is a wonderful microcosm of the whole stinking Bible. It's like, this is, this is exactly the way he works in the Old Testament. This is exactly the way he works in the New Testament. This is the whole plan, and it's always been the plan. Here we go, well, the stuff we see the Holy Spirit doing in the Old Testament is pretty much the stuff he's saying he's still planning to be doing. What else? Any of these things specifically here, but any of these things where you say, actually, I, I see some of that in the New Testament, or in the modern day. No? Well, we see the Holy Spirit working in, um, in Acts, and even though we point it to that being something that we always go to, it's it's about sharing what Jesus did, and, and, and that's what, you know, as we do, we should be, you know, waiting for the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding with that. Okay. Um, and to be, 
not just watching for how God's working or how Jesus works. Absolutely. Does the Holy Spirit still lead us, direct us, change us into different people? Isn't that what a large chunk of what Paul is saying about the indwelling of Christ's Spirit in us is supposed to be doing? Does the Holy Spirit still say, you know what? I'm going to give you wisdom. You may not like it, but I'm still going to give you the wisdom that you may not even want to necessarily hear. Can the Holy Spirit still direct us, I don't know, even in our workplaces, even in our abilities to do, you know, those mundane things on a Tuesday? Can the Holy Spirit still give us knowledge that we couldn't have possibly known before? Is there anything in the New Testament that talks about that sort of thing? Does the Holy Spirit still breathe life into us? Do we still have our being in God and his being in us? I argue, yeah, through this whole thing, all this stuff is stuff that we see going on still in the New Testament and still in us today. But somebody, let's, we were in Joel on Friday, but let's just read this from Joel. Joel 2, 27 to 32. that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both women, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, on the earth, blood and fire and bellows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness. The moon before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. On Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors. So what hope do people have in these verses? Or what hopes do we have? What do we have to look forward to here? And listeners of Joel. Rough stuff, and ultimately, uh, if we call upon the Lord, we will be saved. Okay. And His Holy Spirit's being poured out. Yeah. They're not just given in a bit and parcel. It's, you know, I think it does, and I feel like um, that overflows. So the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on all people, right? On the survivors. And everybody then will dream dreams and speak out in prophecy, right? kind of person. There's nobody that you go, well, only these people will. But as he's saying, yeah, I'll pour out my Holy Spirit and everybody, everybody, everywhere will be great and filled with the Spirit. Um, not, not necessarily. But doesn't Peter point back to this in Acts at, the, at, at Pentecost saying, wow, this is what Joel was talking about, about the Holy Spirit pouring out on people. People who are wanting that, people who are Seeking God, they're filled with the Spirit. And amazing stuff happens because you're getting past just the stuff that you can do. And everybody that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's that's really cool. Help me out here. 
When exactly is this going to happen? In Joel. At the great and dreadful day of the Lord. How can that be both great and dreadful at the same time? Is it going to be wonderful? Or is it going to be horrible? Is it going to be billows of smoke and the sun not shine? Or is it going to be everybody calls in the name of the Lord is going to be saved? Booyah. Which is it? Yes. Yes. And how is it yes? How does that work that way? How can it be great and dreadful? How can it be terrifying and spectacularly wonderful? How? So when the flames came and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not killed because there was a fourth guy standing there in the flames with them, they all went, cool. Although they I mean, it wasn't, said this is really hot. Yeah, but they, they, uh, they weren't terrified. They weren't, they weren't shocked. They weren't saying this is unsettling. I have no problem with them saying, this is all still quite a, an exuberantly, complicatedly emotive day. Because they said, we may not survive this. And that's not going to be a lot of fun. But uh, even if we survive this great and dreadful day of the Lord, it's still a great and dreadful day of the Lord. But this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about from Isaiah, doesn't it? It's like, so did... This is the Holy Spirit doing two different things, right? Him pouring out his powerful purity and righteousness on the world. But he does it differently to Christians than to non-Christians. Um, no, actually. I, no. Still the same powerful purity and righteousness, isn't it? But to those who are in the, with the Lord, to those who have the Holy Spirit in them, to those who are seeking God, that's a baptism. Booyah burns off the dross and leaves the core of what's there. To those who have no spiritual core, to those who have no relationship with God, it burns off the dross. You go, oh, you were with dross. It's bad for you. It's hard on you. It's bad for you. But it's the same spirit doing the same stuff. Yeah. But it just makes me think of the Passover. Okay, yeah, the same spirit doing the same stuff. You know, well, do you have the blood on you? Have you covered yourself with the blood? So, you, you know, I'm a better person? No, I mean, you're a covered person. Yep. How does this begin to point to the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, then? What we're talking about here. And Joel's making it. Yep, God's making a point there, even in Joel, of saying, I'm no respecter of persons. It's it doesn't matter. It matters do you have are you covered by the blood? That's what matters. It doesn't matter whether you're a king or not a king. A servant, not a servant. A man, not a man. I don't care. I don't care. Are you covered by the blood? Exactly. 
<laughs> yeah, I'll continue. Doesn't matter if you're a son or not a son. Doesn't matter if you're, yeah. So do you see any patterns or consistencies in general in what we've been talking about in the, in the Old Testament? I mean, we already started with this a little bit, that all of these things are pointing to serving and honoring God and helping us, empowering us to do that. Anything else that you see at all that we haven't mentioned so far today? Be up on the website. Look it over. There's, See if there's, there's just so much that he does more than I ever think about on a daily basis. It's hard to pinpoint. It's really much bigger. He's much bigger than I think. Does that become a pattern of consistency? Yeah. In and of itself, is that a pattern? He is much bigger and much more involved than I tend to think. You go, what's the first thing we see him doing in Genesis? No. Um, He's at the creation of all things. And then we're told that God breathes his breath of life into humanity. Yeah, but, you know, has he done anything since then? You breathe because of the Holy Spirit. You non-Christian sinner breathes because of the Holy Spirit. You breathe because of the Holy Spirit. He's involved in everything and every part and empowering anything that you're doing if you're actually trusting in God. You know, well, you mean spiritual stuff. I mean stuff stuff. Mundane-ish stuff. Because, I don't know if you've heard me say this before, there is nothing that's mundane. There's nothing that doesn't matter. There's no small stuff to God, and there's no big stuff to God. You're not an ambassador on Sunday mornings. You're an ambassador every moment of every day. You're always showing people what it means to be a follower of God. You go, well, I don't show people anything. Uh-huh. That's what we're showing. The Holy Spirit is involved in all of this, which means maybe we should on a daily basis say, let me shake the cobwebs out and think, how can I let the Holy Spirit do what he's wanting to do and empower what he's wanting to empower in my life? As opposed to me just going, well, this one I've got. I mean, it's not like he's going to help me work in wood. <laughs> There's precedent for that one. Okay. Was he active in the New Testament prior to Pentecost? Because it'd be tempting. Okay. I finished the Old Testament. Don't actually raise your hand unless you desperately want to. But if you find yourself going, There's Pentecost. Good. But it's tempting for a lot of us to say, Right, and then in the New Testament, there's Pentecost. Is he active in the New Testament prior to Pentecost? Okay. Somebody read me Matthew 1.18. I don't remember where we are next. So, next person read me Matthew 1.18, and somebody read me Luke 1, 34-35. Is that you, Donna? Donna, read me Matthew 1.18, um, and... Uh, Paul, why don't you read me Luke 1, 34-35. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child with the Holy Spirit. How will this be, Mary asked, the sign of the Virgin, the angel answered, the Holy 
how can a mere spirit create a physical child? Yeah, there's some precedent to this, isn't there? Plus, I remember, I remember somebody saying, all right, I get how the father could create a child, because that's what fathers do. How can the spirit create a child? At which point I took him back to what we referred to earlier, as Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and says, you worship your father in spirit and truth because God is spirit. You go, well, I can understand how the father could create a, a child, but how can the Holy Spirit do Dude, the only descriptor we're given of God's physicality is that he's a spirit. So the idea of, of saying, oh, how can, a, how can a spirit create you? What were you expecting to create this? Number one. Number two, there's precedent of this. The spirit is what gave us life in the first place. Right? He's what breathed into us this. How can a mere spirit create a physical child? Not sure which part of God you were expecting to create a physical child. Which is why, again, you have whole churches come up with, then God must be physical and create physical children. Which means that if God is physical, he must have been physical just like us, and he had his own planet that he grew up on, and when you can become a good God, you can become a God of your own planet, and you just go, but all of it comes out of the, how can a mere spirit create a physical child? Doesn't it? Surely there must be physicality to God that we're just not appreciating. How does this echo what we've already seen throughout? How's, okay, we talked about Genesis 2-7. Somebody go back and read me Job 33-4 and Psalm 104, 29-30. Who's next? Randy's next. So Randy, take Job 33-4 and then Gary, take Psalm 104, 29, and 30. In Genesis 27, that's where we have this... this uh, or the, Gen, no, no, Genesis 2, 7. That's where we have uh, God breathing life into man. Job 33, 4. The Spirit of God has paid Psalm 104, 29-30. Remember we talked about ruach in, in Hebrew being the, the word for spirit and breath. Talk about pneuma in the New Testament being the primary word for spirit and breath. So when we hear, you know, when you remove the breath from them, and then when you breathe your spirit in them, it's all of the same thing. When you take their life's breath, when you give them life's breath. The spirit has always been doing this, hasn't it? How can you read Job 33.4 and then say, well, how can a mere spirit give physical life? I don't understand how that works. Hmm? I don't know, crack that puppy open. Read Genesis, read Job, read Psalms, read your Bible. Why, this becomes a question here, why is the Son of the Father to be conceived by the Holy Spirit specifically? Why, why does the angel say that one, would you say? Have you ever thought about that? Why not just say God the Father will overshadow him, or overshadow her and create Jesus? Why say the Holy Spirit? Credit to the, not 
part, even though they are all one. And in Genesis, Genesis one, Genesis two, what is the what is the creative activity of Jesus before he was ever called Jesus? Help me out here. What does John one one say that we could look at Jesus as in Genesis one one? The Word. What does God do in creation? Speaks it. So Jesus, the Word made flesh. Jesus is God's volitional Word. What's the Holy Spirit doing? He's actually breathing the life into us, right? So you go, well, if the Father wills the Word, the truth, His will to be made flesh, that actually makes sense as to what Jesus is doing. Which part of the Godhead would actually breathe that life into being? That would be the Spirit, wouldn't it? Theologically, doesn't that make sense? Exegetically, from what we see the Holy Spirit doing in the Old Testament, doesn't that make sense? And we get to see the Trinity. The angel says, God the Father is making a Son, who is the Word made flesh, and the Spirit is breathing life into him. Let's go. <laughs> Do me a favor. Somebody read me Mark 1, 6 through 13. Whoever's next. Okay, Christy, why don't you <laughs> read me Mark? John wore clothing made of Mark 1, 6 through 13. That is correct. Okay. John wore clothing made of the leather belt and the jumped out at you that the Holy Spirit is doing in these verses, or will do? What do people say about it? Well, that's a good point. How did John even know that the Messiah was coming in the first place? Special bonus points for you, Jim. <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah, how did John even know that he was coming in the first place? John's a prophet, right? First prophet in four centuries. Yeah. The Holy Spirit's already at the very beginning when John says that's the Holy Spirit working already. Okay. What else? What did the Holy Spirit do in verses 10 through 11? And why was that significant? Help me out here. Summarize. What is he doing in 10 and 11? He descended upon Jesus like a It was actually really hard to find an image that didn't have a dove landing on Jesus. 
it didn't say the Holy Spirit was a dove. There was a dove that landed on Jesus, and I said, that's probably the Holy Spirit. And this is the way that he could describe something white just coming down from the heavens and landing on it. Did it look like a dove? Maybe. But it's dangerous to think it was a dove. Okay, so I purposely tried to find something that wasn't just a dove. But was this the point where Jesus became God's son? Oh, I say that because it comes... Thank you. I say that because it and, and, and I'm not picking on them. I asked if I could, I asked this person if I could if I could use this analogy. A couple years ago, somebody in our church said, "Well, that's the point where he became Christ. You know, he became the Son of God, right? That's when the Holy Spirit came on him. You can be an evangelical Christian, spending your whole life in a Bible-believing church, and not know this, right? Just like I can hang out in my garage for an extended period of time." without becoming a Buick, right? Yeah. Pardon me? Or a mechanic. Or a mechanic. <laughs> Rub it in, Jenny. Thank you. <laughs> Remember that bonus point? It's gone. Because, <laughs> like, I have the power to dispense points. Um, no, this isn't the time when he became God's son. He's, okay, I'll go back to John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was and always has been God. And the word was with and always has been with God. It's never changed. He continues to be this. That's the force of that verb. So, no, this is not when Jesus became God's son. So what's, what is going on here? I would even, yes, I would even be willing to give you, it's also an affirmation of Jesus. Aren't there multiple times in, in Scripture where God's like, I love you, and I'm with you, and we got this. Whether he sends an angel to say it, or God says it to him, or what have you. Jesus is still human. I'm not saying he's got the same foibles and the same brokenness. That we, no, but he's, he's human. And all of us need an attaboy to one degree or another, especially when you're facing hard things. I, I could even give it that God might say, I want everybody else to know, and I want you to know how much I love you, how proud I am of you. I tell my children all the time that I love them. Rarely, it's because I wonder if they doubt it. I'm just affirming them because I love them and I respect them and they deserve to hear it. By the way, who saw all this? He saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove. He who he. He who he. Who, who, who saw this? Okay, Jesus, because in the divine capitalization. Okay, I would say yes, Jesus. How, why do you say John the Baptist? He is there, and we're specifically told in John 132 that John the Baptist saw it too. So, I mean, it's not just, it's not just, and Jesus said, hey, did you see that? And everybody goes, I'm sorry, what? Nope, at least two people saw this. Possibly everybody there saw this. But yeah, this is this is this is not just going on in his mind. This is God affirming him. And then what did the Holy Spirit do in the very next set of verses? 20, 12, what? Sent him out. Yeah! Sent him out. Not to fun stuff. Why is that significant? Okay. I love you. I'm proud of you. 
this is my son, my spirit goes with you, go do the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. It will end up being the second hardest thing you will have ever done in your life. Why? Why is that timing significant? It's because he didn't want his head to get big? Because he's the, that's the most affirming he's had of his disposition. Yep. It's tempting for us to say, one, two, three. Why did he do three after two? No. Ever think, why did he do two right before three? I am going to affirm you. I'm just saying you're my son. I'm proud of you. Your mission is, is solid. I'm filling you with my spirit. Go do the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. Is it that God says, this was great, so I'm going to take you down a couple pegs? Or is it he's like, before I ask, before I'm going to make you go do this hard, hard thing, I am going to strengthen you in every way that I can. What, is, what does that suggest? God does that for Jesus. But he, he I mean, he doesn't do that you know, for us. It's just, a, it's just a Jesus thing, right? think so? Aren't we told that the angels attended him and gave him support? Didn't they give him support in Gethsemane? I don't want to, I hear what you're saying, but I don't want to, I don't want to not see his humanity. How, how would you go through 40 days of not eating? Would you be pretty weak at the end of that? Did he just use his God powers? So he doesn't, he wasn't weak like a human would be weak, right? Or would that defeat the whole stinking purpose? I don't think he uses God powers. I think, I think he was weak and tired, which is why it's at the end of that time that Satan comes to tempt him. Not weak, like sinful, weak, prone to temptation like the rest of us. Just weak, tired. I have no problem with thinking that Jesus got hungry, that Jesus... Especially with some of the phrases coming out of his mouth, I have no problem with believing he had headaches from time to time. Really? How can you guys be this dull? How does that work exactly? Stuff like that. But you got you got God saying, I am I am strengthening you. I am empowering you. I'm affirming you. Would he not do that to us? Are we specifically told that the Holy Spirit does that for us? But how can the same spirit that that blessed Jesus immediately lead him into suffering? The same spirit that blesses Israel and fights against them. It's the same spirit that has a great day of Yahweh that is the same thing as the dreadful day of Yahweh, right? It's, it's the same spirit. He doesn't change. It doesn't change from Genesis 1-1. He doesn't change one bit. But the same spirit that says, I'm going to lead you here is leading you here. And I've got to think, it's because he knew that verse 12 was coming even when verse 10 was happening. It's the same spirit leading him. What does that suggest about us? Yeah. Well, suffering is part of the was involved. But I don't know that that was... I mean, he, you could argue that he 
must go in in the wilderness to put the devil in his place. Okay. And that that was that was something that needed to be accomplished. So sure. I'm not. I'm not sure that those are I, either or though. No, not necessarily. I'm. I'm just. I don't know. I, there was a, there's a lot more going on than just okay, Jesus needs to go into the desert to suffer. Like, that. there's a lot more happening there in addition to that. And I'm not saying that he doesn't. There always is, though. I would say any time that any of us suffers, there's more than just their suffering. I agree with you. There's more going on here than just suffering. Okay. I, I, I do think that God was aware that there would be suffering when he led him into the wilderness. I'm not disputing that. I'm not... So, so, so God is blessing him and then leading him into pain and suffering. Not just for pain and suffering. Same way that I don't think the cross was just pain and suffering. But I'm pretty sure he got led into pain and suffering. Okay, fair enough. But you're absolutely right that there's more going on here. But my point here is if we say God blessed him and said, this is my son, and then led him into the wilderness to say to Satan, I am God's son. And we go, yeah, consistency. Yep, we can totally see that. If we say, God blesses him, and the Holy Spirit says, this, this is my, this is, this is God in the flesh. This is my son. The Holy Spirit is sharing this to the world, and then the Holy Spirit leads him out to suffer and be tempted by Satan. We go, uh, that seems like he's, it's inconsistent. I'm like, I, I, I don't think it is. Because I think in all that, I'm sorry, why did Christ come in the first place? Didn't he say, I came to suffer and die? This is, this is why I came. This is the whole reason I came, is to be God's son who suffers and dies. That's what doing, he glorifies God the Father by doing that. Do we see this in microcosm in these four verses? God's Son, here on earth, going out, suffering, and glorifying God. And God is ultimately glorified and Satan is ultimately put in his place. Do we see that in these four verses? So is there something fundamentally inconsistent in what the Spirit is doing here? It's like, I'm, I'm bringing you to go and do this. This is what the next three years are going to be, to varying degrees. What was John referring to in verse 8, by the way? What does he say in verse 8? So, is he talking about Jesus specifically breathing his spirit onto his disciples in John 20? Is he talking about the Spirit's work in everyone who believes that Jesus referred to in John 7? Or is he talking about the church being filled with the Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2? What's he talking about? How can that be yes? I know, you guys take too many classes. How can that be yes, though? He's talking about everyone who believes receives the Spirit. He's talking about the disciples specifically receiving the Spirit when Jesus breathed it into him. Oh, 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 Genesis 2, 7. What do you know? Talking about the church being filled with the Spirit of Pentecost. And how significant is it that 
Acts 1, 7-9, talking about the Holy Spirit will come and, and fill you to overflowing. You'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Happened after John 20. Jesus is telling his disciples, you will get the Holy Spirit at Pentecost after he breathes his Holy Spirit into them in John 20. How's that work? Well, it seems to me from like Old Testament precedent that there's, it could be like, I don't know, that anyway I'm going to express this will be in another Oh, yeah. Um, that's not on you. That's yeah, any way to express this in um, There could be like a, a difference in quantity or concentration of the Holy Spirit. Like, like the Holy Spirit could be with you, but then at other times, you could be like completely overtaken mm -hmm. by the Holy Spirit, and that's more what was going on with Pentecost. But like when you know Samson went on his you know like battle rampages, and, but the I mean the Holy Spirit was with him normally too in a way because like when he was with Delilah mm -hmm. later. His hair got cut off. He didn't. He didn't know that God's spirit had left him, which, to me, implies that he had been there, mm -hmm. even though he wasn't at that moment. Well, that's and that's something that we don't get in English that you get in in, in Hebrew, but especially in, in Greek is Peter, who had gotten the Holy Spirit breathed into him in John twenty. Right? We're told in Acts two, Peter at that moment filled with the Holy Spirit. That the term filled with the Holy Spirit is a is a is a punctiliar thing with that. The example I used the other day was I'm just gonna drop my cup. The example I used the other day was if I were to fill this up to the brim you'd say, well this you filled a cup with water. I mean that's normal colloquialism, it's fine. And it's filled, it's got water in it. But I'm usually filling it up to here. If I were to take this cup and then fling it into the ocean you go, now, how full is it with the, with the water? You go, it's, it's completely covered with every, every part of it is touching the water. It's immersed in this. It's super saturated with this. If this were somehow foolishly a porous thing, you know, it, it, would be, it would be completely saturated with that water. You go, so is John talking about what Jesus said in John 7? Anybody who believes has the Holy Spirit in you are the temple of God's Spirit. He dwells in you. Yeah, John, Paul makes that point, doesn't he? Is he talking about, just like in the Old Testament, just as he always has, there are times where he immerses you in himself. He, he overflows out of you. He fills you to, to do beyond what you could ever possibly do or imagine or understand or anything. He empowers you far beyond anything that you can possibly do. Like Paul talks about sometimes. Sure. Are there some churches that say, yes, and I completely understand every part of that. And it's like this. Yup. Do they? We can have a whole discussion about that if you'd like sometime. But it doesn't change the basic fact of what the Bible is saying. Yes, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. If you're not a believer, 
yet don't. But he's still everywhere. So we're not talking there's a hole where there is no Holy Spirit. He doesn't exist. God doesn't understand what's going on inside the unbeliever. No, don't think of it like that. For the believer, God dwells with him, walks with him. And there are times where if you let him, Balaam, if you let him, people at Pentecost, if you let him, <coughs> Corinthians, if you let him, God says, I can be so much more than so much more than a passive Jiminy Cricket living inside your heart that you think of when you think of him. Because that's what he's always been doing, isn't it? Before we even ever get to Pentecost, before we even get to that point, we see the Holy Spirit working consistently saying, I'm drawing people to the Lord. Consistently empowering people for the Lord. Consistently filling people at various moments to do things far beyond what they could naturally do. We consistently see him giving people wisdom that they didn't have. We consistently see him giving direction to people that they couldn't come up with on their own before we ever even get to Pentecost. So when you think of the Holy Spirit, don't just think of the Holy Spirit as some sort of active force that came upon people at Pentecost and made them do something funky that one time. And ever since then it's been Jimmy Cricket. Never the way he worked before that. It's never been the way he's worked after that. He knows what he's doing. He has personality. He has volition. He is part of the Trinity. And he's actively involved in your life, every part of your life. But just like with any part of the Trinity, though he has a commanding presence, you're not a puppet. So you kind of have to be in relationship with him. From your end, too, right? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you that you have filled us since Genesis. I thank you that you have blown life into us, and that that life comes from you. That spark of life, that sentience, that, that soulishness comes from you. Thank you. I thank you that as Christians, you have taken that to a different level where you you indwell us. You you take each step with us and you, you are in relationship with us at a level that even those whose spark of life comes from you, who have that breath of life from you in them, they can never understand. And I pray, Lord, help us to help them understand. And I thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is so much bigger than just being encapsulated in our stuff, our clay. Thank you, Lord, that even before we get to Pentecost, we see your Holy Spirit filling us, changing us into different people, using us to do so much more and understand so much more than we could on our own. Lord, help us to understand him. Help us to understand each part of you through him. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.